postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church podcast. It's been an absolute amazing ride over the last few weeks. I've been hanging out with Paul Anthony Turner. And uh, we have been discussing for Pottenar Season 3 of the Story Church Podcast, ministering with the LGBT plus community. Paul, it's been an absolute blast. And we're actually almost done, guys. We've only got a couple episodes left. And um, so we're going to start to wrap this up. We're going to dive right into it right now. We have uh, three more of the don'ts to cover, and then we're going to move into some things that you as missional Adventists in your missional Adventist communities can actually do in order to meaningfully or redemptively engage uh, LGBT friends, neighbors, uh, people in your community. So um, before we get into that, uh, Paul Anthony, man, how, how are you going, bro? It's been a little while. We weren't able to connect on Monday, so I had a lot of angry emails. Um, I'm just kidding. People weren't angry. They, were, they understood. But uh, yeah, let us know how you're going, um, and then we'll get into these final three. Yeah, um, doing really well right now. Um, my logic class is killing me. <laughs> it's like math. It's, it's like a form of math with straight up letters, and I sometimes don't understand it. <laughs> but otherwise, everything's going that really well. sounds like the most boring thing ever. It it's, can be, but you know, so, sometimes talking about possible worlds, it's it's it can be pretty fun, interesting. Well, I remember some years ago I did this uh, apologetics course through, like it was like William Lane Craig did the whole curriculum. Oh um, yeah, it was extremely interesting. But there was a, a portion where he kind of got into logic, and um, and I think Alvin Platinga had some stuff on that as well that was connected and it was just so incredibly boring because it like i don't know what it's like in your class but i'll just tell you what i experienced so they they were talking about logic but there's like a language that logic people use and yeah it's like numbers and equations and formulas that and they speak in this language so unless you're like super nerdy and into that you're just kind of sitting there like what in the world are you talking about? Yeah, when I, when I first started philosophy last semester, um, I I would read some of the um, I, would, I would read some of the articles or readings that we were given from our professors, and the the, the philosophers who wrote the articles would use these very complex statements. I didn't know how to read them. I I knew very basically how to read them, but I didn't know how to how to interpret all of it. And it was very confusing. Now I do. So it's like, oh, okay, cool. This actually it's actually pretty helpful. Um but yes, boring and and a bit nerdy. <laughs> it's not my field that I will be going into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad, bro. I'm glad. <laughs> oh man, hey. Um let's take some time 
uh, in these last few episodes. And um, we're going to plug through three more of, of these top 10. By the way, for those of you who are listening, um, it is midnight here in Perth. I'm recording uh, with Paul Anthony. It was, it was the next best time we could pick uh, during the week. So uh, it's midnight here. And I'm going to do my absolute best to make sure the crickets in my garage do not annoy you too much. But if you can pick up on them ever so subtly after all of my intensive labor to, to get rid of their ear penetrating shrills, um, forgive me. So, all right, let's, let's do this, Paul. Um, so we've got three more, uh, actually, no, uh, I think, I think it was four anyways, I'll let you introduce it and then we'll go for it. Yeah. So one of the, I'm pretty sure I covered, I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain I've said this in probably the last three episodes in one form or another. And now, so I'll cover it extremely briefly so we can get to the other three. Um, but don't assume that you have nothing to learn from LGBT plus people. Um, if you're a straight person, um, Christian, you are probably, you are more than likely raised with a certain narrative that says that L being an LGBT plus person um, means that you are sinful or that you, um, there's nothing good about your sexuality, nothing about your relational or expressive self. And this is just simply not true. When you consider, as we've talked about in other episodes, once you consider how our sexualities and relationalities are formed and how they are informed, then it becomes rather nonsensical to say that being gay or being transgender or being um, bisexual or pansexual or asexual or, or what have you um, is bad, like being those things are bad. Because even if you might have, let's see, let's take homosexuality, for instance, even if you with a certain belief, um, a certain tradition, a certain biblical sex ethic might believe that um, marriage between a, a woman and a man is the only thing that God ordained. Okay, sure, you might believe that, but that does not allow a person to conclude that everything about the phenomenon called homosexuality is bad. There are other factors um, that contribute to the formation or they comprise um, homosexuality just as much as um, same-sex sexual desire um, and potentially behavior. So, and then also to, you know, on the other side, we need to consider how heterosexuality is just as much, um, it goes beyond just opposite sex sexual desire or behavior. It goes beyond that. Um, there are social more, um, mores that inform um, our sexualities. Um, our, our sexual desires are even part and parcel, or relate rather, I should say, they are related to our um, non-sexual desires. Um, we should, we really need to think about our sexualities as a web and not as um, isolatable aspects of ourselves. It's like a spider web. So if you, let's say that at the center of the web is um, your, like you're trying to, you're trying to speak most directly to someone's sexual desires. Okay, cool. But part of the web, because all the various parts of our sexualities are interrelated, just as much part of the web are our non-sexual desires and not our, our, our expressions, um, aesthetic desires, etc. So if you poke on any one part of the web, all parts of our sexuality move to varying degrees, depending on how close they are to the center, whatever that center might be, namely in this case, your sexual desires. Um, and the same thing would go for heterosexuality and homosexuality. Um, so don't assume 
that, you know, as a straight person, that even if you do take issue with a certain feature of homosexuality, that you take, that you have the grounds to therefore take, take issue with the entirety of homosexuality. Um, again, like for, in, for instance, homosexuals, um, um, LGBT plus people in general, I would say, but just to speak more to, since I'm gay, I can speak for this, you'll find a greater sense of, um, a greater capacity um, or ease in showing same-sex non-sexual affection. Um, you won't find certain kinds of um, toxic conceptions of gender roles present in the community, etc. Um, those are things that queer people, LGBT plus people experience um, that I believe are very biblical and godly and often straight people um, miss out on because of the ways they have been brought up to believe. So don't assume, um, I'm pretty sure I've talked more about this in depth, so I'll just leave it there so we can go to the other three, but just don't assume that you have nothing to learn from LGBT plus people because there are, I, honestly, I believe that God is using this community to correct a lot of the, the, the ungodly, corrupt practices and ideals that straight culture has, um, has put forward. Yeah, and I remember uh, we, we talked about this whole concept of... of um straightness being again so much more than merely uh you know a male or a female are sexually attracted to the opposite sex there's there's a lot more that are, are sort of social conventions and and social scripts have have added on to that and it's it's sort of become this sort of massive construal that we kind of use to um I don't know, sort of limit our, our, ourselves, our expression, or, or to express ourselves in a certain direction. We talked about uh, a pretty um, obvious example where uh, men aren't allowed to cry, for example. You know, yeah. we, we talked about that last time. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that this is a really brilliant point for us to consider and, and nested within what you said, or I don't know, maybe nested is, is an overstatement because I think it was pretty, pretty overt what you were saying there as well, is this idea that if you recognize the beautiful complexity of a person, it's very difficult to ever arrive at the notion that there's nothing you can learn from them. I think yes. it takes a certain level of depersonalizing the other, a certain level of dehumanizing of the other for anyone to arrive at a place where they're like, oh, there's nothing I can learn from people in that community. You know, like they have to, you first have to dehumanize them from the complexity of what it means to be a human being, you know, psychologically and socially and historically and, and just, I mean, spiritually, like so, so much, you know, so, so much. Um, and I think this is absolutely brilliant because if we're talking about like how to minister with the LGBT plus community and you want to approach the LGBT plus community as though there's nothing you can learn from them and, and you're only there, the transaction in the relationship only goes one way. It's what you have to say that matters. And they're just there to take in what you have to say. You can pretty much kiss ministering with the LGBT plus community goodbye. You know, so, <laughs> you know, on, on the very level of pragmatics, I think we owe ourselves the humility and the compassion to realize we can learn so much. Yeah. And, and I think this transcends far beyond the LGBT plus, it, it goes into everything, you know, like uh, growing up, you almost get the impression like, you know, uh, if you're an Adventist, you cannot learn anything from Catholics, for example. Yeah. To, 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 uh -oh. this example. Um, well, I have an aunt and an uncle who are just 
the most beautiful human beings on the planet. And they're Catholics and they've been Catholics their whole life. And I remember growing up, I must have been around eight or nine. I still remember, I actually thought about this story this week. It's so weird. It's come up now because I hadn't thought about it in forever. I must have been around eight or nine. And I was at my aunt's house. She had three daughters. She's got four, but three were already born at the time. So three daughters, my, my, my cousins. And, and we're sitting in the living room. And I had brought this VHS of uh, Samson to, to, you know, like a cartoon of Samson. I was like, hey, okay. do you guys want to watch Samson, like, beat Philistines up? You know, he was like a really buff guy. Like, of course, I, I was a nine-year-old boy. So I was just like, I, 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 love, I love Samson, you know, to talk, talk about the social uh, convention, right? <laughs> but um, <laughs> I love, you know, I I love so Samson. For, for, for two reasons, but we'll not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Love um, you know, it's, it's, I, I think, I forget who it was. I think it might have been Jeffrey Rosario some years ago. He was talking about how he thought it would be really, it was a sermon of his I heard. He, he's like, I always thought it would be really cool if Samson was like super strong, but he wasn't buff. And, and, and it's just like, it, that would have been amazing. Cause it'd be like, so counterintuitive. Like, how's this guy so strong? Like he's not buff. And then he was like, he read something in like patriarchs and prophets that he was buff and he was like, oh, so anyways, um, <laughs> so, um, so I, I'm, I'm sitting in this living room with, with, um, with my cousins and I'm like, Hey, I, I brought this movie of Samson. Do you guys want to watch it? And one of my cousins looks at it and she sees Samson, he, you know, he's pushing down the pillars. It was on the cover and she's like, oh, he dies in the movie. And I was like, yeah. And so she says, oh, well, that just means he's in heaven. And I looked at her and the prejudice was already deeply embedded, you know, in, in my mind yeah. at this young age. I looked at her and said, he's not in heaven. People don't go to heaven when they die. And then she says, yes, they do. And I was like, you know what the problem is? You Catholics don't know anything. Oh. I literally said that at like eight or nine years old, bro. To, oh, no. <laughs> so, like the prejudice was already deeply embedded, you know, and I, I think we do this. Um, it's not just a religious problem. I think it's a tribal sort of human narcissistic sort of pride problem. Um, but as I grew up and, and I deepened my relationships, I, I came to discover that not only my cousins, but my aunt, my uncle, some of the most beautiful human beings I've ever met and I learned so much from them in terms of what it means to treat people with kindness, with compassion, you know, and, and the own faith tribe that I grew up in was so caught up with their ideological uh, possession that they, they, they couldn't be kind to others, you know, they, they couldn't, they couldn't, reach out relationally with compassion and love. And I saw this in my aunt and uncle and I was like, wow, you know, like I appreciate the doctrines I'm learning because I think there's beauty and value to that. But from you, I'm learning how to be human, you know? <laughs> so anyways, that's my long winded way of saying, I think this is definitely, if you want to have a, a meaningful interaction with the LGBT plus community, do not assume you have nothing to learn from them or else you can kiss that interaction goodbye. So <laughs> All right. So you wanted to jump into the next one. Go for it. Yeah. Um, uh, so the I guess third to last point is that you should not threaten to remove support from your LGBT plus loved ones. Now, this one for, for this group who will be listening to this podcast might be intuitive, even if they have certain hangups with, with, with understanding queerness and so forth. Um, but you never know. So and it's, it's really unfortunate because the Christian narrative is one in which we have a father God um, who, despite 
everything that we have done wrong against him does not abandon us, does not throw us aside. And it's unfortunate. No, it's, I'm just going to, I would say it's blasphemous that there are so many Christians who think that they have merited the right to toss aside their, their queer loved ones because they might disagree with the, with, you know, with the very fact that they exist as a queer person, or maybe how that person may or may not be living or could live or not live, you know. Um, it's, it's paradoxical that we have a God who doesn't give us up despite what we have done wrong to him. But somehow we look at that fact, celebrate that fact and turn around and do despite that fact. It's, it's paradoxical. Um, Love does not threaten to cast aside. And I had I had a friend when I was in seminary. Um, I have she is still my friend. Um, her father is a minister and um very very conservative um, side of the church, grew up in a very conservative side of the church. Um and her parents actually threatened that unless she left her girlfriend, they would cut off support, which they did. Um, I, believe, I believe the two of them are actually getting married, if I remember correctly. That might be off anyways. Um, and it caused a big riff um, for their family. And, you know, so now she's at, you know, she's at, you know, at the university I was studying at, and it's very expensive. And they have not only cut her off financially, but cut her off um, um, emotionally. They're not there for her at all because of this concern for this part of her life. And so this, this one is really simple. We don't have the right. If God freely gave us love and refused to abandon us, we don't have the right to abandon those with whom we might disagree. If you really love your loved ones, how can you find it within yourself to ever give up your child, to give up your child, your brother, your sister, your, your best friend? My, I was talking with my mom about this recently where uh, we were um, about, you know, families, mothers and fathers giving up their, their gay children. Um, and she said, I, I don't understand that. Like what? And I, I understand people have prejudices, but there is something wrong with you. If ever you come to a point where you don't love your kids enough to, to look past a concern you might have with how they may or may not be living or with something that's a part of them, if, if, if it causes you to look past the fact that they are your child, you know, and that extends to you know, someone being your brother or your sister, um, if you really love that person, you should persevere in seeking to understand them and not threaten that I'm going to do you the harm of removing support that you depend on if you don't stick a stay true to this thing that I believe. That's sick. That's not love. That's manipulation. And you have a lot of that going on um, in our churches. I'm very grateful that none of my family members have, uh, have done that with me. And that's um, unfortunately probably the exception, not the rule for the majority of LGBT plus people. My mom was, um, I love my mom. <laughs> she's, my, she's my favorite person ever. Um, my mom, my mom actually went to a pride parade before I did. 
<laughs> here in Louisville, my mom, my mom is the, my mom is that mama bear who will literally kill someone if they mess with me. <laughs> um, and anyway, so she was at this pride parade here in Louisville where I live. Um, and she had, she, my sister actually went, sorry, my sister went as well. This was in, this was, this was June of 2019. And they went out there with these signs, um, that said free, free mom hugs. Um, and the idea is, um, you know, a lot of LGBT people have been cut off from their, their family, their families who said, you know, if you don't disavow being gay or transgender, or what have you, or if you don't leave this person you're with or what have you. We're going to cut you off and many of them do you know obviously get cut off my mom was there and she said this the countless hugs i think she said she hugged like close to 200 people my mom's not a touch touchy person but anyway she was hugging hugging these all these young people who kept these young adults and and kids who were coming up and saying wow our parents won't even do this for us thank you for standing in and doing this and i'm like guys it shouldn't require a perfect stranger going and standing on the street and hugging your kids that you're too afraid to get to understand. Um, again, if you have freely received the love of God, and if God has not abandoned you, where do you get the audacity to think that you have the right to, to cut off support to someone? Um, sometimes you, you, and I think that a lot of Christians are concerned that they don't want to come off as condoning a certain way of living. And I think that concern is unwarranted because you might by cutting them off be condoning something else that is even worse you are condoning something that's far worse than whatever you might perceive yourself to be condoning and con continuing to support their livelihood um so we we really need to weigh how much of this is um how much of this is actually con is concerned for godliness and how much of this is just bigotry fear prejudice um, and a lack of love and a lack of appreciation for just how much God did for us and not abandoning us when we were in the wrong. Oh, man, this is, oh, there's, there's so much in this one right here because, yeah, yeah I'm going to organize my thoughts quickly here because I know you've got other points that you want to get to. But, you know, a part of me thinks of, a part of me thinks there, there's, there's gotta be bigotry. Absolutely. You know, uh, yeah, definitely for sure. A part of me thinks as well that you would have to have some sort of attachment issue in your own life, um, to, yeah, to, to bring you to the place where you're like, I'm willing to, to do this to my, to my you know, sibling, my, my child, whatever it might be, uh, even, even a friend, like, it's just, yeah, it, it just, for me, it kind of blows my mind the, the, yeah, it's, it's a sort of a strange thing, but I guess that's really complex. So if we start going down that direction, we, <laughs> we might be here a lot longer than we intend to. So let me maybe hit at one that's probably a little bit simpler because you've already touched on this one. So it seems to me that a lot of times when a Christian parent um, cuts off an LGBT plus child, in their mind, what might be going on or what seems to be going on from what I've observed is 
they're doing tough love, right? They're doing the tough love in order to spur their child to repentance, so to speak, right? Um, and I think perhaps in many cases this is rooted, and, and I don't want to debate this because I feel like if, if, okay, maybe I'll make the point for you. I feel like sometimes it's rooted in um, the belief that people merely choose to be gay. Like you just woke up one day and said, I'm going to rebel against my parents and be gay, you know, like, (laughs) and, 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 and that, that's probably at play. And it's like, oh, well, we're going to meet this act of rebellion by cutting you off and teaching you a lesson without recognizing that actually this isn't just something that someone just woke up one day and said, today I choose this, you know? Um, (laughs) But I guess that's why I said, I don't want to debate that particular point because I feel like if, if you are listening to this and you and you think people that gayness is something people just actively choose and unchoose, then you're probably not the target audience for this podcast series. So, but <laughs> but what do you think about the the notion that sometimes people think that this act of shunning, which is essentially what it is, that that is going to that that is the thing that's going to spur the child to to turn away or to repent or to or to come to their senses you see you see what i'm trying to say like what do you think about about that particular space um there's, there's a reason why i'm asking that question uh, i guess i guess in my mind i'm thinking of the incredible rates of you know suicide and mental health in, in the lgbt community often um exacerbated by or or even caused by by this shunning but anyways yeah so that's kind of like my my sort of <laughs> what's the word panoramic thing in the back of my head as I asked the question, but yeah, like oftentimes people would be like, Hey, if I, if I'm, if I like shun my kid, if, if I cut them off, if I act really tough, um, it might just get them to repent. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. Um, statistically it just doesn't work. <laughs> um, exactly. you know, it, it has opposite effect, man. It's, it just has, it has the overwhelming opposite effect. Um, queer people come away with the belief that, oh, if my quote unquote godly parents shun me because of this thing that I am or that's in me, however you want to say it, then the God that they are supposed to be mimicking, so-called, um, must be the very same way. It's going, it simply is going to have the opposite effect. Statistically, it doesn't have manipulation. Ultimately, it's manipulation, and manipulation does is not a tactic of the kingdom of God. Love is the king is the is the tactic of the kingdom of God. Persuasion by the force of love, the strength of love, that is the tactic of the spread of the kingdom of God. So, the devil works, Satan works by manipulation, um, and by intrigue. that's just not a tip it's not a tactic i i i can't even and then like so like a priori i can just i can just see wait this is that's a tactic the devil uses that that isn't the kingdom of god and then secondarily okay let's see if the tactic works what does it produce lgbt people are flooding out of the churches at alarming rates so you know (laughs) I, i parents need to parents loved ones of lgbt people need to need to wake up to the fact that they have been given a certain narrative about what it means to be queer, um, about the the moral worth of LGBT people, namely that we're reprobates, they, they believe that we're reprobates. 
you have to take you have to take stock of the narratives that you've been told about LGBT people. Really consider what you've been told and consider if you really want to believe that about your child or your brother or sister. Really sit and consider, okay, the media, my pastor, ex-theologian, whatever, is saying that LGBT people are these sexual um, profligates who are trying to destroy the family, or they wake up one day and they choose to be gay or transgender, or they, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I just really want people to step back and consider, do you really believe that about your cousin, Brian, or your sister, Mary, or your, your, your best friend, Serge, whatever? Do you really believe those things about them? Um, really take, really take into consideration that. And if you really love those people, and if you really know those people, it becomes impossible for you to think such terrible things about them. It will give you the, it'll give you pause. It'll give you pause and cause you to, and, and cause you to be gracious toward them. And for you to withhold your judgment and to get to know them and not cut off your support of them or your love for them. Your, your, your understanding of tough love is just not going to work. Cutting someone off is not how you show love. That's the ending of love. What would you say? Because I know, I know that this is, this is, this is a really really hard one if if there was a if there was a young person listening right now who is lgbt plus and they're hearing this and they're like hey i'm actually living through that right now mm. like i'm immersed in that experience i've been cut off or i'm on the verge of being cut off if there was one thing you could say to them to encourage them in that space deeply unjust space, what, what would it be? Oh gosh, that is so heavy. First off, the only thing I can say is God is love and God loves you. And what those people are doing to you is not loving and it's not of God. I would just implore that person who's going through that right now, just to know that God has not cut you off, that God is deeply in love with you. And though the so-called godly will do ungodly things towards you, towards you, that's not how God is. God's deeply in love with you. And he'll he'll watch out for you. Keep putting your hand. I know it sounds really cliche. I'm I'm so aware. I'm trying to stay away from all the pastoral plat the platitudes and cliches i really am but honestly keep putting a trust in god keep holding his hand um it's going to be tough i went through this last year where my the conference that was supposed to hire me as a pastor um abandoned me um also last year i went through the abandonment by my local church of 10 to 12 years somewhere around there where they persecuted me and my family and they abandoned me um it's tough. It really is. I, I, there's, there's no easy way to say that. What I will say is that Christ was abandoned. 
He was abandoned by his family. His brothers and sisters um, mocked him. They didn't understand. His disciples abandoned him. They cut off his support. Um, um, like uh, those scriptures say, strike the shepherd and the, the sheep shall scatter. All his disciples, when he was struck, all his disciples, save one, um, abandoned him. Know, know that Christ knows what you're going through. He is, as much as he is God, he is just as much human. And he has gone through the abandonment. He's gone through being being cut off from all earthly supports. He knows what you're going through. Um, even when the father had to turn his face away because Christ was being covered by our sin, Christ experienced the greatest abandonment, sort of abandonment. God wasn't technically abandoning him, but that's another matter. But in a sense, he was abandoned by everyone. Christ stood absolutely by himself. And all he had to hold on to was the fact that he knew that his father would approve, had approved what he did. Um, and so just stand as difficult as it, as it is, know that God will never give you that much to bear. Know that God is standing there with you. He will not, he will never leave you or forsake you. Um, he's, he's right there standing with you in this crucible that you're going through and he will bring you through. Just keep holding on. Just keep holding on. It's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. Thank you, bro. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's go to point nine. I mean, <laughs> to point yes, nine. absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't, uh, I didn't, that wasn't scripted, by the way. It just, I was just like, I just felt the spirit yeah. say, get Paul Anthony to speak into this. And I'm like, he's going to be on the spot. Oh, yeah. I was like, like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Over here, like praying, God, what do I say? Because it's, it's so, <laughs> it's so heavy. Like, what, what do you say to people that doesn't sound platitude, platitudinous or cliche? And it's like honestly, those some of these some of those cliches put hold hold to God's unfailing hand. I mean, that's yeah. the kind of stuff that got me through being abandoned. I mean, yeah. And just remembering that God does love you, and He won't do what others are doing to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so love point it. nine yeah. is somewhat is somewhat related to um to point eight. Um, don't sub please for 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 the love of God please do not subject or suggest to your LGBT plus loved ones, um, to reparative therapy, gay conversion therapy, um, so-called, or in any way indicate that you are praying for or rooting for them to experience some change in their sexuality. Now, this is a, this is, a, this is annoying. This, this one's annoying. So I'm going to try to be very this gracious. Is a, yeah, I, this is, I was just about to say like, this is, uh, this one's going to like grind. <laughs> grind oh my gosh. Uh, help me quite, quite a bit. Yeah. Oh. Go for it, man. Right. Help me. Holy ghost. Cause I, I hate this point actually gets me a little, okay. Help me Lord. So str straight people have a certain kind of paternalism toward LGBT plus people. Like I've mentioned before, where they believe that, you know, if we weren't there, the gatekeepers, gay people would just become utterly depraved and so forth. And we have to pray for them to become straight and so forth. And we have to, we have to, um, we have to take them to these, these, these gay conversion summer camps and, you know, all these weird kinds of things because we have to fix them. Um, okay. First off, gay conversion therapy does not work. Now, some, okay, so when I say gay conversion therapy doesn't work, I mean it in this sense. One, it's incredibly damaging. Look at any, look at any research on it. It's actually proven to be very damaging. 
um, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally to those who are subjected to it. Um, it is not effective. Now, those who experience some, some, because again, sexuality is fluid. We do have to reconcile with the fact, we do have to, ex, um, to acknowledge the fact that yes, our sexualities, our sexual attractions are fluid. For instance, when I was growing up, I used to be, I remember very distinctly being very bisexual. I remember, I can list to you some of the girls I was attracted to. But as I moved into late middle school years on into high school, I just became very exclusively like Kinsey scale six gay <laughs> or thereabouts, probably five actually, five, five and a half, whatever. Um, so yes, people for all intents and purposes, yes, they can slide around on the on the spectrum as far as their sexual attractions. However, because being get, quote unquote gay or quote unquote straight, um, because one, they're not fixed categories, it's a spectrum. And two, because um, because those categories are so multifaceted, again, it's a think of our sexualities as a web, all the different aspects um, get tugged on when you push on our sexual attractions, because of that fact, um, it becomes rather, it becomes a, still a little nonsensical to say that someone can become, can become made straight um, because there are other aspects that are part of the gay, um, I don't know, the gay, I don't know, disposition that still get carried over. Um, but bottom line, gay conversion, gay conversion therapy as has proven to not be not be effective and even those there the exodus international was a was the was is i think they've gone out of business or whatever um the largest um, <laughs> um organization um foremost organization for for gay conversion therapy um and for years, they're putting forward this narrative that if you just pray hard enough, that if you just work hard enough, you too can be come straight. And um, I'm still waiting on becoming straight. I prayed, I prayed forever to become straight. It has not happened. And trust me, no one prays harder than a gay than a gay person who's praying to become straight. I promise you. That's a that's a very hard, that's a very um out of the depths of my soul kind of prayer. Um, so the idea that we're not praying hard about this and, you know, insinuates that we're not actually, um, it, it makes it makes a statement about our spiritual integrity, which is insulting. But beyond that, um, this organization um, was the foremost organization for um, advocating for gay conversion therapy. Ironically, recently, um, the, the former, if I remember correctly, and no one send me hate mail if I say this in, in, a little incorrectly, but the president, I believe it was the former president of the organization, um, just came out explaining that he is still gay. And I was like, of course you're still gay, bro. It's all right. Yes. I'm, I'm pretty sure I read, I read a, a very similar, yeah. <laughs> very similar. I believe, I believe he's in a relationship with another man too. So it's just like, the irony is just so thick. It's like, it doesn't work. It's nonsensical. Um, we just need to, we need to recognize that, you know, okay, let's say, let's say that you are from a church that is, that maintains a traditional biblical sex ethic. Okay, cool. Let's operate within that paradigm. When a gay person comes to you and says they're struggling with their sexuality, your goal, now that, now that you've been informed that being gay goes beyond just same sex sexual desire or behavior, but is a, a whole range of other aesthetic or expressive um, aspects, 
you can't you can't tell that person I'll be praying for you to become straight because you're saying a lot of things by telling someone that you want them to become straight. Um, there are a lot of like, for instance, you should part of that would be, for instance, that they should become increasingly un, un, uncomfortable with same sex platonic affection, that they should become less, um, less like if, if it's a man, for instance, a gay man, that they should become less emotional, that they should be not as aesthetically concerned or so forth. And again, that's not to say that there aren't straight people who people who are opposite sex sexually inclined who don't who are, um, it's not to say that there aren't those who are emotional that um, that are able to do, to have strong same-sex platonic bonds. That's not to say that, but I'm saying in general, these categories are fixed in the ways that they are, where straightness has a certain narrative about what it means to be a straight person and gayness has a certain narrative about what it means to be a gay person. So when you're telling someone um, that they should go through conversion therapy or that you'll pray for them to become straight, you don't realize all the different things that you are wishing upon them. Um, so just realize there's nothing to pray for, except that maybe your own heart needs to be transformed so that you can be a safe space for that queer person to thrive, whether they, or that gay person to thrive, whether they choose to be gay or sexually um, to get married or to not get married, you know, or, you know, you know, whatever. Um, the better prayer is for you to pray, Lord, how can I be a safe place for this person to grow in whatever ways that you need them to grow so that they can have a productive journey with you? And in what, case, in what ways can I advocate for them in my, my local church, in my family, if they're a family member, um, in my friend group, et cetera? that's a more helpful prayer. It's almost as if we need straight conversion therapy. And by straight conversion therapy, I don't mean that we, straight people need to <laughs> become attracted <laughs> to people of the opposites of the same sex, but there needs to be a conversion of heart. We need straight conversion therapy, straight people, heart conversion therapy. Um, that's, that's the conversion therapy that needs to happen. Queer people are, we're not, we're, we're not doing anything wrong by being gay. Um, so it's, 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 it's insulting when I have people, uh, when I have, it's insulting. I understand where they're coming from, but they'll say like, oh, I'm praying for you to, to overcome, to overcome this thing. It's like, sweetie, I, I have nothing to overcome. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> and even, even the person across the aisle who might be in a relationship with someone of the same sex, who is submitted to the Lordship of Christ, who is going to church, who is reading, the, reading their Bible, who's praying and so and doing living missionally, et cetera. They're also good, you know? <laughs> so um, we don't need to be converted from, our, from, our, from a certain sexual desire to another. Um, I think that we need to start talking about straight people experiencing a conversion of heart. That's the conversion I think would be most productive for gay people. That's actually thought I've never actually articulated, but that's an interesting. <laughs> I like the way that sounds. We need I'm straight glad it could happen on here. So yeah, <laughs> remember that's me sure. when you when you become famous. Um, <laughs> so I, I want to parse this a little bit because I think one of the things that I think is really important for people to understand. And I really, really, really hope that 
regardless of whether you agree 100% or 90% or 70%, whatever that might be, uh, are, this is a thing that I, I think gets missed a lot in, in this whole conversation when it comes to like reparative therapy or, or what I refer to as reparative uh, theology. Um, so when it comes to reparative therapy, what I hear a lot of Christians say is, oh, we don't do that anymore because that's, you know, we recognize that reparative therapy is harmful and uh, we, we don't do that sort of thing. But, and that's cool. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that at least that's a thing, maybe not everywhere, but at least in, you know, some conversations I've had, I'm glad that people are like, yeah, we don't do the reparative therapy thing, not cool. But, but I think what people often miss is that reparative therapy can be something really overt, like the Exodus International people with, you know, you, you go and you stay on their ranch and they do all this stuff and, you know, <laughs> counseling that's supposed to take a gay person, make them straight. Um, we, we, we see, we think of reparative therapy in those very overt tones and, and the damage that they've caused. Um, but we, we may not be engaging in that, but I think what a lot of people often fail to capture or appreciate is that you can also practice the same philosophy of reparative therapy in very covert ways, right? In ways that aren't in your face, in ways that aren't um, yes. easy to identify, easy to spot, right? So like, I'll give you an example. I have a friend, um, just, just to make my point. So I have a friend whose son was being bullied at school. The problem that he had was that the way that the kids, the way the bullies were bullying, did that make sense? The way the bullies, yeah, the way the bullies were bullying was in a very covert way. Mm -hmm. It wasn't your standard, I'm going to beat you up and take your lunch money, right? Like it wasn't like that. The bullying was never physical like that. They were never hitting him or calling him names. It was really, 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 really subtle things, yes. you know, like passing a message through the, through the boys in the class. Hey, we're going to go play basketball over there on that hoop, but don't yes. invite him, you know? Right. And it's like, it's really subtle little things like that, that, you know, little notes that are being passed. Um, and, you know, one kid sitting on one chair, the boy who's being, Billy's being bullied is sitting, sitting next to him. And then there's another boy over there and, there. and there's like this communication going on and he's sitting in the middle and the communication is passing right by him because no one wants to involve him. You know, it's like these real subtle little things. And it was so many of them that they ended up having to take him out of the school because there was nothing the faculty could do. Because it was too covert. There was just no way for them to actually identify the problem to do something about it, right? And so this is the sort of a metaphor I'm trying to, like, this whole reparative theme can happen in really overt ways that most of us, I think, appreciate as being really damaging, but it also happens in really covert ways. And I'll give you, I'll give you some ways that I'll give you, at least if I can think of any more as I'm talking about this one. Um, I'll give you some ways that this happens. So whenever we talk about, you ever, oh gosh, every time there's a campfire or there's a camping trip, you know, if you, if you went to academy, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but here in the States, 
um, academies will often go, Adventist academies will often go to the woods or whatever for like spiritual retreats. I went to one in, I think my 10th or ninth grade year, something like that. And, and, and I remember it might not have happened at this particular time, but it's happened several other times where when we're talking about sexual purity, we end up talking about, okay, you're going to be wanting to date someday. Um, how do we be holy in that particular context? And everything, when we talk about holiness with our, within, with our sexuality, it's everything is set up within a, a heteronormative kind of way of speaking in such a way that I as a, I as a gay person or yeah, as I as a gay person never felt that I could actually benefit from the conversations because there's a certain assumption, everyone in the room is straight. And if you're not boohoo for you, we're not going to try to, to temper the material um, in such a way as to make it accessible or relevant for you. It's going to be in this kind of way or the images that are put up are always of straight family um, or of, of, of mommy, daddy, sister, brother kind of deal. Um, there's, and, the, and actually that'll kind of bleed into the next topic. Um, but in general, there's this sense in which we're only going to talk about matters of sexuality from a heteronormative perspective, from a straight perspective. And when I say straight, I'm not talking about just, again, because straight is more than just opposite sex, sexual desire or behavior. Um, uh, we're going to talk about things from a straight perspective, one which men are supposed to be super macho and emotionally detached. Women are supposed to be these super um, dependent uh, dependent on men and aren't supposed to be um, um, uh, separate from their men. And where um, there's this sense in which men who are um, aesthetically inclined um, or are emotional are not living up to the best, are not living according to what it means to be a man or, or what have you. Um, there, it's, it's subtle. It's subtle. And a lot of, a lot of times when I'm sitting in churches, I'm just, I'm just like, wow, this is the straightest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and, and, we, and what's interesting is when I think that sometimes they're not even talking about marriage. It's not even about marriage. It's, again, I'm celibate. It, the, the concern is, because straightness and get, being gay are more than just about sex and behavior or, or, or sexual desire, when I hear other things being put forward, I'm like, wow, this is so straight. Like, this is not how I as a gay person think. And I think that these things that are being put forward are unhealthy. Um, but instead of the church actually sitting and trying to wrestle with what, you know, whether what is being put forward is healthy or not, we continue just to put it forward as being healthy. Meanwhile, we could just, like, like I was saying a few points ago, we could just step back and consider, hmm, now that's interesting. Queer people or many, many queer people tend to experience life in this kind of way. What are the ways that we can learn from these things and correct our straight way of thinking, even if there are certain things that we can't get behind? Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, a lot of it is subtle um, and not even... Yeah, a lot of it is subtle, and it doesn't even have to necessarily do with them disparaging gay marriage or gay sex, but other things that are part of the gay affective experience. Um, and so, yeah, very subtle, but very much there. Yeah, absolutely, man. And I think this is the, kind of the way I've been able to process it. And look, I don't have all the answers here. Um, 
the way that I've been able to process it to a certain degree in my own experience is like this, uh, just, just to make this practical for those who are like, okay, so how do you do this practically in a meaningful way? Um, so I'm interested in your thoughts because this is kind of the way I've been able to, to process it is in my relationship with LGBT plus friends, family, neighbor, etc. I never want them to get the sense or to feel that in their relationship with me that I am viewing them as someone who needs to be fixed. Because the moment you create a dynamic of you need to be fixed. Now, I, I understand theologically, we all need to be fixed. That's what the whole, that's what the idea of redemption is, right? We're all being redeemed, restored to the image of God. Like, I get that. I'm not talking about it in a theological sense. I'm talking about it in an interpersonal social dynamic the moment you create an uh, environment where a person feels like being a part of this community or being around this person means i'm always subjected to the sense that i need to be fixed and that they're keeping an eye on me to make sure that you know i'm operating within the constructs of what a fixed version of me would look like in order to be accepted, et cetera. I don't even know if I'm, that statement made sense, but I think, yeah. I think you get what I'm trying to say. Like the moment you create that, what you end up doing is you end up nurturing really subtle ways in which you're perpetuating this reparative narrative. Um, and, and, and sort of you, it's like Bonhoeffer. I love the way Bonhoeffer said it. I don't know if I quoted this in a previous episode, but Bonhoeffer made this point in 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 a, a statement of his um, that the only community that you really belong to is the community where you can actually be a sinner in the community. If mm. you're not allowed to be a sinner in the community, then it's not real community. Mm -hmm. So what we end up doing is we create these scripts to say, this is what it means to be holy, to be part of the community. And if you don't match the script, you don't belong in the community. But the problem is nobody matches the script. So the only people who are in are the ones who get good at pretending to match the script, right? And that's just a really Straight sad this. way to live, you know? Straight yeah, this. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so I think, yeah, look, I don't have all the answers, but for me, what I, the way I try and orient my life and my relationships with, with LGBT people is like, look, I want you to be able to be in my space and to be yourself and to be who you are. And I want to be able to be a blessing for you in your walk with God and, and leave the conviction up to the Holy Spirit. And, and I'll be here for you, but I never want you to feel like I'm trying to fix you or that I'm even interested in, 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 in taking, you know, the neuro pathways in your brain and <laughs> rewiring them to suit the script that I've, that I've, that I'm comfortable with, so to speak. Um, that's kind of how I, how I process yeah. it, but that leads me to a question. I'll let you comment on that, but then I have a question as well mm -hmm. that I think is going to be fun. So anyway, go on. Yeah. I was just going to say, when you think that you're, it's your responsibility to fix a group of people, it sets up necessarily a dynamic, a power dynamic and a um, a dynamic of inequality in, in our human humanity. 
um, you come to think that their humanity or our rather our humanity as queer people is less than yours and that we experience experience sin to an intrinsically greater degree than um, anyone else. No, excuse me, that we experience sin to an intrinsically greater degree than straight people. And so I think that it becomes impossible to really do mission effectively, to, to live missionally um, effectively when you believe that you are greater than someone. And to be certain, these ways of thinking about queerness where it's something that needs to be fixed I don't, yeah, I have to conclude that it necessarily sets up such a dynamic, such a power dynamic, um, an un, an, um, unequal um, dynamic between straight people and queer people. Just get over the fact, this one, and here, here's the thing, again, I keep coming back to this point. Once you accept that gayness and straightness are not just about sex, once you accept that fact, that fact should actually cause people to reconsider a whole slew of methodologies they have when approaching the LGBT community. You can't say that we are sinful. You can't say that being gay is sin and that you can't say that people should become straight. Um, you can't advocate for gay conversion therapy, at least not unless you're gonna, unless you're not gonna, uh, not unless you're going to advocate for straight conversion therapy as well. So it becomes this kind of, what, what are you actually praying for me for? What, what are you really asking for me to experience change in? And are you willing to experience the change that you as a straight person need to experience? I think that thinking of gayness and straightness and considering it in its non-sexual sense, which might be counterintuitive, but considering those categories in their non-sexual senses, it very powerfully levels the playing field for straight people and gay people immediately. Straight people have nothing to say to me because I'm just like, sure, I might not. Okay, sure, you you might say that um that me having sex with another man is bad. Okay, well, can you hold your you a man? Can you hold your guy best your your guy best friend's hand without feeling uncomfortable? No. Oh, I can. Why can't you? Or can you know? It becomes this this little game of well, who's worse than who's worse than someone else? It, it becomes nonsensical. It, it's actually quite laughable once you once we make that concession that gayness and straightness are not about just about sex. Conversion therapy goes out the window. It's yeah. dumb. <laughs> so let me ask you a practical question that I know a lot of people listening are going to be wrestling with. Mm -hmm. um, so. I'm trying to think of how to formulate the question in a simple way, but it is 1.21 in the morning here. So my brain isn't quite- as, <laughs> You're quite doing really good for 1.21 in the morning. <laughs> so I'm not quite as nimble as I usually am. Okay, so here's the question. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw it out there uh, as best as I can. If I fumble it, help me Jesus. So in, in terms of even what I've just described, what we've been talking about here for a little while, like this experience of, um, being able to do life with the LGBT plus community, uh, to, to be a blessing to their spiritual development, to not seek to be fixers and, and all those types of things to, to avoid not just the obvious 
covert sort of reparative narratives, but even the subtle ones where we make people constantly feel like they're a project that we're trying to fix, you know, all those things. Um, like it, it leads, because I, I have these conversations with, with many missional Adventists who are like, love the LGBT community, want to serve the LGBT community, but it kind of, you always get right back down to this core. And the, the core question is this, so then is it possible for for me as a missional Adventist who loves the LGBT community, wants to serve and build the kingdom of God with them. Is it possible to do that if I don't have an affirming theology? Because I think yes. sometimes that's where people get uncomfortable. They're like, so yes. sometimes people start to feel like, unless I have an affirming theology, I don't stand the chance. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, I, I'll encounter other people who are like, look, I don't have an affirming theology, but I don't want to believe that there's no chance. There's got to be a way to move mm -hmm. forward and, and have a meaningful. So that's, yeah, I, I think for a lot of people, that's like where the, where the, the metal meets the, the road. Is that the phrase? The metal meets the road? I don't know. But yeah, Robert. for a lot of people, I, I, think, I think that's like where the grind really happens. So I'm interested in, in, in your thoughts on that. Yeah. That is such a fantastic question. It's, it's it, honestly, I would say it's probably it's probably the question. And I'll, I'll say this: we, yes, to, just to answer the answer the question in in brief. Yes, it is possible for you to not be. Before you continue, Paul Anthony, I just realized that maybe I should define very quickly. Affirming theology is. I was going to do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, you were going to do it. All right. I'll let you do it. All right. Go yeah, yeah. Do it better than me. Yeah. I was like, I should probably clarify those terms. Um, so actually, I'll say yes. And then I'm going to double back and define the terms and then double right back and, 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 and explain why I say yes. So I actually, I call myself, I refer to myself as a gay, as a gay affirming Christian. Why? Because I affirm the lives of gay people. <laughs> I'm gay. I affirm my life. Now I know that people generally use affirming to refer to whether you affirm gay marriage. Um, and they use welcoming often if you are a church that maintains a traditional biblical sex ethic, but is still open, um, very much open and welcoming to LGBT people. Um, I actually, I, I take issue with those designations because affirming has uh, designating side B churches, those main, those that maintain a traditional biblical sex ethic as only welcoming and using the language of affirmation with consigning the, the, the language of affirmation to side A or progressive, um, progressively biblical churches, churches that maintain a pro progressive biblical sex ethic. I think that is linguistically problematic because so much there's there's so much power in words and if we use a language of affirmation with one group and not with the other it gives the impression that oh you don't affirm me it moves from from affirmation of a certain theological or ethical matter you know gay marriage or you know or traditional marriage it moves from that to whether you affirm my existence as a queer person. And so I just say, yes, I'm a, I, I refer to myself. I don't say I'm, I'm a welcoming Christian. I was like, I'm, I affirm you. I, I'm gay. I affirm myself. I affirm all gay people, whatever 
your conviction might be, wherever, however we might um, disagree when it comes to marriage or what have you. Um, but I, I tend to stay away from that from that language. I don't think it's wrong to use it. I'm saying just for um, for expedience, um, I, I, I try to just say we can be affirming of the queer community um, in, to various degrees or in various ways. So with that definition in mind, um, <clears throat> it is possible for if you maintain a traditional biblical sex ethic to to be affirming of the gay of the of the queer community absolutely absolutely um your your the ways in which or the, the degrees or the extents to which the extent to which you would affirm that commu our community is going to be different um but even even people on the um on the more progressive side um on this matter are going to have because of because they are Christians and the, you know they are Christians and there um, there are still ethical considerations that they have in common with us. They are even going to have certain things that they're not going to be able to vibe with the queer community on. At least I hope they would. <laughs> um, at, at any rate, so yeah. So I try to stay, I try to stay from the language of making one community one side more affirming than the others. It's really it's just the the extent to which. Um, we're able to, we feel comfortable um, to affirm the community. So yes, if you are a Seventh-day Adventist Christian or a Christian of any denomination that maintains a traditional biblical sex ethic, you can be affirming of LGBT people and not affirm gay marriage. And uh, yes, that would that might be a sticking point for some LGBT people. But what I have found from my personal experience is that if you are willing to think in a nuanced way, articulate your belief in a nuanced way, recognize that your articulation, your, your articulation of or interpretation of scripture is not salvific, <laughs> that people that God is working with everyone where they are. Um, once you accept that fact, it will, I think it'll make it, it people will see the graciousness, the, the, um, the the work we're trying to do in being nuanced and meeting them where we are even as we disagree so again for instance i when i was when i was at my university my, my, when, I was, when i was studying in seminary um i was in charge of the the lgbt the um the the school's lgbt plus care group um which is really awesome and it, it grew um while i was leading it what um and i i'm really grateful for that and i think that one of the reasons why I was able to be so effective um, in the group, even though I was the only, maybe, maybe three, let's say there's 25, there were 25 of us. I was, there were only maybe two or three who people who maintained a side B belief um, because I was willing to be nuanced in my belief and not, um, not use it as a way of putting up barriers in um, and connecting with people, they respected me, even though the majority of the group was side A. So that's not to say we, you have to compromise on your belief, but it's just like, don't be a jerk about it. Um, don't be so, don't be rigid in your belief. Hold your belief firmly if, you know, as, as you feel God, as you sense God is leading you, but don't become um, rigid to the point where you can't even dwell with people and, and be fluid. Um, um, in, in, you know, in, in addressing yeah. these matters.
So, so what I hear you saying is, yes, it's possible that there will be some LGBT people that, if you if you don't have this sort of classical affirming theology, you know what we generally mean when we talk about progressive Christianity and sort of like hooray and a or or, or um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's late. Hooray was a terrible way of putting it. <laughs> um, classical affirming theology where you're basically within your theological construct saying you know gay marriage uh same-sex sex they're all part of god's design right it's sort of the theological progressive wing um and 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 then sort of the more traditional view which would be you know marriage man woman sex and you know um that's kind of the the terms but i love the way you've articulated that though where you're saying look let's not allow the idea or the concept of affirmation to be pigeonholed into one particular, you know, you, you, you can't have the traditional ethic and, and be able to affirm the lives of people, even if you don't necessarily subscribe to it, to everything that comes with, um, that, that experience. So, so that's really helpful. Um, and, and kind of what I hear you saying is that, sorry, go on. Yeah. And honestly, that's no different than being part of any community that we're part of, but you might take issue with certain aspects of it. For instance, I'm American in a certain kind of way I celebrate it not not actively necessarily um <laughs> for certain, well yeah so to a certain extent I'm kind of like yeah I'm American and that's, that's that's part of my identity and I I I participate in my American and in, in American culture and so forth and, and reap its benefits or whatever however you want to say that but then there's another extent to which I don't I don't agree with it on certain ways like I don't agree with the nationalism the the militarism the uh, American can do no wrong the um, the neo-colonialism that, that, you know, um, that we put, that we project into the world. Um, so th it, it's just how we operate in general, that there, that no matter what community you're a part of, or that you engage with, there's always an extent to, what we, to which we agree or disagree with communities. And this need not be any different, but I think straight, I think a lot of Christians have been so trained to demonize LGBT people and not think about our lives in nuanced ways that they fail to see this is a community that has features like every other kind of community that we that you might agree with to a certain extent or disagree with to a certain extent but i think we need to like you were saying at the very beginning of all the all, of all the um, podcast episodes we need to avoid um reject the seduction of reduction that would cause us to reduce this entire community down to something that just needs to be entirely disregarded i forgot i was on mute <laughs> i'm back i'm back i was just saying it's really helpful and 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 i hope we've got to move on we've got to move on i know people have many more questions but i do want to remind you guys that paul anthony turner is on instagram he is on facebook so you can find him if you want to continue to dialogue um so we're going to move on from that question even though i know there's probably more that people would would want to like sort of parse uh, only because we have one more and then we got to wrap it up I've, we've actually only got a few minutes left even though this last one was meant to be the one we focused on the most but <laughs> we're gonna have to condense it bro um yeah i can definitely left. um but again if you know if you have way more questions 
uh, from anything we've discussed, feel free to contact Paul Anthony Turner. And, and also feel free to just keep exploring and, and interact with LGBT friends in your own life and family members and really sit down, inhabit their space, listen, listen with the intent to understand, not with the intent to respond. Uh, and you'll learn so much. Um, this is, yeah, this whole podcast series is really just scratching it. You know, it's just you know, a, a real sort of basic sort of approach or, or interaction with this theme. Uh, definitely... LGBT people are way too beautiful and way too complex and their experiences are way too multivariate to summarize it perfectly in any podcast series. Uh, even if we did 100 episodes, it wouldn't be enough. So definitely make sure you're reaching out, connecting, having those conversations, interacting live with love and, um, and keep learning. So, all right, I'm just going to jump onto the last one here, Paul Anthony, because I've got to wrap it up. But um, your final point, this is a big one, man. And I just, I'm, I'm mad we have to summarize it, but I'm really glad we spent the time we did on the last one as well. Um, do not idolize marriage, sex, or family. Please speak into that. I'm really yeah. curious. Yes. So, uh, gosh, there's so much that can be said on this. I think that we need to, firstly, recognize that our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is a single man, a single man who also said, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters, except the one who does the will of my father in heaven? That's my mother, my brother. That's my mother, my brother, and my sisters. Um, this is a, this God man that we worship flipped upside down social expectations in saying, basically in, in how he lived and in the things that he said about family he indicated that the real, the real family that matters, the true, the true family that matters, and that's, that 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 grounds all other families, that grounds all other relationships, is the relationships that the relationship that we have with each other and with God in the family of God, the kingdom of God. And it's really unfortunate that we, in the West at least, and I can speak to this, and maybe more specifically the United States. Um, we idolize marriage. We idolize sex. We idolize um, the nuclear family. And I think this flies in the face of, Christ, of, of, of Christian teaching as the word of God presents it, um, where Jesus and Paul both speak of the, the, the incredible worth of singleness, but yet the church speaks about singleness as if it's this thing that should be absolutely avoided. It's this negative thing. And you get this from people who are progressively minded and traditionally minded. And, you know, as I, as a celibate, as a celibate person, um, <clears throat> get all the time, you know, I've gotten people say to me, oh, you're going to be celibate. You know, what a waste. Or, you know what, if you don't get celibate, you're never going to experience love to the fullest. And I'm like, well, that's interesting because Jesus is love and Jesus is single and it says that when heaven, we're all going to be like the angels. And the angels aren't married or having sex. So how do I, and Paul says, it's best for the kingdom of God if you remain celibate like me. And then Jesus, in response to the disciples asking, you know, when, when they said to him, so it's better if people should remain single. And people, Jesus said, well, some people can't accept this teaching. 
It's like, well, that's interesting. Jesus is celibate. He said it's better. He said some people can't accept this teaching that it's probably better for you to stay for you for you that it is better for you to stay single. Paul said, for the kingdom of God, it's best that you stay single. Um, and we have a whole slew of other saints throughout history who, who, who accomplished incredible things out of their singleness because of their singleness. But somehow in the modern era, we have, we, um, and it's historically traceable why these developments happened. Um, but we have adopted this narrative about marriage that says marriage is this end all be all necessity, ne truly necessity and a right um, in order for, um, in order for us to live um, our most, our truest be, to be at our best. And, you know, it, it becomes real, rather contradictory um, or um, hypocritical for the church to maintain such a teaching and then tell gay people you can't get married. It's, gay, gay people get this really conflicting narrative. So on the one hand, we're supposed to stay single and not have sex, okay? And on the other hand, Every other sermon you preach is about how your wife and you did this, your husband and you and your kids went and did this, and how sex is the pinnacle of, 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 of relationality for humans. It isn't, by the way, and no one until recently in history ever thought that actually, you can do a little bit of research on that. No one historically, not even the people who, not even the people who wrote the Bible believed that, but anyways, okay. Um, <laughs> um, um, it's just, it's painfully hypocritical and conflicting for LGBT people to hear, we're supposed to remain single, but then you're saying that God designed for us to all get married and have sex. How do I reconcile these things that you're telling me? And why should I be deprived of this thing that you're saying is necessary in order for me to not only experience strong human-to-human -human relationship, but human-to-God relationship? How dare you tell me that I can't get married if you're telling me this thing is a necessity and it's a right. So we really need to step back and actually evaluate in brief, we need to evaluate the scriptures again. We need to take very seriously the fact that Jesus said in response to the disciples asking him, so it's preferable that we stay, that people remain married, remain single? He says, yeah, and some people can't accept that teaching. Paul literally wrote an entire chapter. <laughs> First Corinthians 7 exists, guys. We read what it says. It is best for the kingdom of God that you remain single. Or, and then also we're going to be like the angels in heaven. What does that say about what it really means to be human? Is our, is our truest essence as being humans that we're sexual? Or is it that we're just relational beings? I think it's the latter. Our truest essence is not that we're sexual beings. That's a thing that some of us can experience. Because, I mean, again, we have asexual people. Asexual people don't experience any sexual attraction. So are they not human? No. So it can't be the case that the most fundamental thing about ourselves is that we're sexual. The most fundamental thing about ourselves is that we are relational. And that's something I see embodied in the life of Christ. He related with all kinds of people. He related with God. He related with himself. Um, and certainly the church needs to to start um, start celebrating other kinds of relationships. Stop celebrating just marriage as if it's the only kind of relationship that deserves any kind of um, any kind of celebration. Especially if you're going to tell gay people they need to remain single. It's 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 bad PR. Nothing else. It's bad theology, but it's also bad PR to tell people you can't have this, but you also kind of need it. And it's it's dumb. <laughs> so true. Um, so true. That's just in brief. One of the most mind-blowing books I've read by Timothy Keller, and I cannot remember the title of the book. Oh, my goodness. 
it's the only book on marriage to knowledge that Timothy Keller has written. So if you if you look up Timothy Keller marriage book, um, I'm pretty sure it's the only one on marriage he's written. Absolutely brilliant book. The first half of the book, he's talking about pretty much the philosophy of uh, the modern philosophy of relationship, but it's rooted and grounded in the Disney narrative. Uh, and so if you've ever watched an yes. old school Disney film, the Disney films have a very patriarchal slash heteronormative slash relational idolatry. <laughs> um, the narrative is built on codependency and it's built on, uh, you know, you the, the princess is always like this one dimensional character with no depth who's just waiting to be rescued by, you know, the brave knight. And, you know, it's yes. narrative paints this idea. Um, and I remember even as a really, really, really young kid, I still remember this. this is one of my earliest memories of depression. Um, I've struggled with mental health throughout most of my life, but this is probably my earliest memory of the very first time I actually felt depression. Um, and I was, I was actually watching uh, The Little Mermaid. <laughs> now, Battlefield Hollywood folk, if you guys are watching this, <laughs> Do not quote me because I don't not really know as far as you guys do. <laughs> but um, but look, beside the besides that was this is a little off the cuff joke. But um, I think the reason why I felt depressed was because there was this underlying theme in the movie that I picked up on as a young kid that you are not complete, fulfilled, and experiencing life to the fullest unless you are in a romantic relationship. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of Disney movies sort of, they, they create that narrative and then you grow up with those categories in your head and you try to manifest them as an adult and you realize, hey, it's a movie and it's all fake and real life doesn't work that way. And then you're left awfully disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I hear what you're saying, man, because the sad thing isn't that Disney tells this story. The sad thing is the church perpetuates it. Yes, exactly. They can tell whatever story they want to tell. They're not. They're not claiming. You know, like we're you know here proclaiming scripture. Them, you know, <laughs> but yeah, like we, we really, really do. And and when we communicate this idea that a person is somehow incomplete, um, you know, and and I don't know if it's like this so much anymore, but I know it was for a long time where you you couldn't get hired as a pastor unless you were married. Yes. Um. And and um. Even if you were a single man in church, you're always getting harassed about, or a single girl, you know, when you're going to meet, you know, when yeah. are you going to get married? And it doesn't stop when you get married either, because then they harass you on when you're going to have kids, you know? So <laughs> it's like it's endless harassment. But I wanted to read almost, one text. It's almost as if Jesus weren't married or didn't have any kids. It's almost as if, almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, hey, forgot that part of the story. I wanted, to read, I wanted to read this one text, because there's so much we could say about this, but... I am out of time, but I wanted to read this one text that I feel has application to this conversation, not only to this present theme, we're talking about the idolization of relationship and the idolization of marriage and the idolization of the nuclear family and all that. But I think this has application to everything we've discussed so far. And it's in the book of Isaiah. Um, 
and I'm sure you're familiar with the text. Isaiah is, there's a vision in the book of Isaiah in uh, chapter 56. And the whole chapter is, is about salvation for the foreigners. So God is describing his salvation, not just for Israel, but for the foreigners in Israel, mm. which is an amazing thing to consider, you know, because there's so much nationalism and ethnocentrism in association with Yahweh that you find throughout, uh, not only in Jesus' day, but, you know, you go to Ezra and Nehemiah and, and, and surely before then, this sort of notion that we're descendants of Abraham, we're, we're the ones, you know, and so this, this chapter is really, really amazing. But in this chapter, in, in verse 3, it begins, it says this, let no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will utterly exclude me from his people. In other words, if you're a misfit, if you don't belong, but you've put your faith in me, I will not exclude you. So this, so this is a, this is a word right here for all people who feel like I'm a misfit in this church or I'm a misfit in this community. God is saying, you've put your trust in me. The Lord will not exclude you. Right. And so he's like, let no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say this, say that the Lord will exclude me. And then he says this and let the eunuch not say, now, what is a eunuch? A eunuch is a, a man who's had his testicles cut off or, or it's, can also be referring to someone who is asexual from birth, just not interested in, you know, that just doesn't have any sexual drive, um, which is perfectly okay, right? Um, and, and so he says, look, let the eunuch not say, I am but a dry tree. So like God is like saying, he's like, look, wait a minute, time out. Again, because a eunuch is typically a guy who's had his testicles cut off in, 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 in sort of the popular sense. And it's easy for a guy who's had his testicles cut off to look at himself and say, I'm but a dry tree because I can no longer perform sexually. And God's like, no, you cannot say that about yourself because there's so much more to you than your sexual performance. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to say this, and I, I love this, man. I love this verse four. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. Wow. I've never read that. Or, oh, wow. And he's not done. And he says this, I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Wow. You know, so God's speaking to this people within, you know, the community who are ashamed, who, who feel like, you know, what, 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 what would a typical man say to a eunuch? You're not a real man. You know, they, they had no sexual drive. They had no testosterone. They, you know, it's like, you're not a real man. You know, there's all this shame that they're having to contend with on a regular basis from the people around them and even from within their own internal dialogue of, of, you know, belittling themselves and deprecating themselves because they can't have a family. They can't have kids. They can't get married. And God's like, look, I'm going to give you a memorial in my house, better than a family, better than having kids, better than sons and daughters. 
And so what's God saying here? It's like, you know, when you talk about the idolization of marriage, the idolization of romantic relationships. And, you know, I, I remember, the, I forget the name of the book. I read a book um, by, by a young gay Christian who, who um, talked about this text quite a bit. He had a whole chapter on it, actually. I just can't remember the title of the book right now. Um, but he, he, he explained this text as... as you you could replace eunuch with anyone in the lgbt plus community and this is speaking life into that you know so anyways yeah i just i just thought wow what a what a beautiful promise that god is giving to people who feel ostracized and less than human because of something that is only associated to borrow from from what you're saying paul anthony only associated to one aspect of their humanness and it's not considering the full spectrum, the web of beauty that you possess as a human being and that you have to offer this world. Um, and God has a plan for you and he has a legacy for you and he has a memorial for you that's, that's greater than the constructs we've created in this world and the scripts <laughs> that we perpetrate. Anyways, I'm about to start preaching, so let me stop, bro. Let me stop. Um, <laughs> It's 1.50 in the morning. I should not preach. It will not make any sense. <laughs> oh, man. Paul Anthony, I want to, bro, I want to give you final word. We got another episode we're going to be recording um, where we're actually going to look at, okay, so what are some things we can do, right? So going into the positive. Now, we're not going to spend as much time on that as we have on the don'ts because the don'ts, we're deconstructing things that are deeply embedded. And so obviously we're going to take way more time with that. When we get into the do's, it's going to be pretty quick and easy, um, and, but it's still going to be just as meaningful. So make sure you come back, finish the season by listening to those do's. But Paul Anthony, as we close this episode, just want to give you the, the yeah, just closing thoughts and um, we'll wrap yeah. up with that. Honestly, I don't have much um, to say. We have said, we've said so much. Um, I guess maybe just to, to speak to, to LGBT plus people again, um, there are so many things that the church should never have done, so many ideals it should never have um, propagated, um, perpetuated um, toward our community. And it's just woefully, it's just woefully painful that it has happened. But all I, all I can say to that is that what we have, what we as a community, as, as the queer community have seen of the church is not what God has in store for us. Um, I don't really much care where you stand on the matter of gay marriage or what, whatever it might be. I just need, I just need us to know that God loves us. He has called you by name from the womb. Heck before you were even in the womb, <laughs> before he formed you in the womb, he knew you. Um, and I'll have to preach right there. Um, and he, he has, he's called you. He's inscribed you on the palm of his hand. He loves you. Um, he's given, he has given, like it says in Isaiah 43, he's given lives um, for your life, um, his own life, in fact. Just know that God loves you and all these don'ts, um, you know, whenever the church finally does get it together, we don't, I don't know when that will, when that day will be, hopefully it'll be soon, you know, just know that God will never do these things to you. You don't have to tell God, don't do this to this community. He's always only loving um, and guiding us. Um, so surrender your life to him and 
Um, let him give you peace, even if the world, you know, because the world won't be able to give you the peace that he can give you.